0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduce to you now. Dr. Carolyn Stone is a licensed naturopathic physician in the state of Arizona and the owner of Stone Naturopathic. She obtained her bachelor's in biology from Kent State University, then moved to Arizona in 2007 to attend the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. After she earned her naturopathic medical degree, Dr. Stone began her practice in 2013 out of a friend's office, then ventured out on her own in 2015. As her practice grew, Dr. Stone developed a passion for helping people with their gut, hormone, adrenal, and thyroid issues. She is the author of the fantastic book, Hashimoto's, You Got This, a guide to help you regain freedom from your thyroid, which is available on Amazon. She continues to fine-tune her practice and is always learning more about the big world of endocrinology and gastroenterology. Dr. Stone believes that there is nothing more satisfying than seeing a person achieve not only physical wellness, but also emotional wellness and genuine happiness. She is also a proud member of the Arizona Naturopathic Medical Association and the Homeopathic Academy of Naturopathic Physicians. Dr. Carolyn Stone, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balance Body Radio
1: yo what is up thank you so much for having me on here and yes i'm super excited to talk about all things thyroid because that is my bread and butter it's what i love to do it's what i'm super passionate about so yeah i'm excited to be
0: here i can definitely tell we're so glad that we found you and found your work which is really amazing i love your content it's it's super awesome i'm really glad i was able to get through the introduction without stumbling on naturopathic i think i read it like 17 times i normally struggle with <laughs> big words <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's hard. Even for people who are naturopathic doctors, sometimes you get tripped up over on it. So yeah, well done. I'm impressed. (laughs) Well, thank you very much.
0: We are recording this episode at the end of January, 2023. I am in Salt Lake City. I woke up this morning. It was six degrees. It has been nuking snow all year. We're just about to like a normal, like kind of average snow year. We're not even halfway through the snow year. Can you please tell me some warm thoughts about Phoenix right now? Like what's it like?
1: (laughs) It's amazing oh. right now. This is, this is our time of year to get out. It's 58 and sunny. Uh, this is hiking season. So that's what I've been spending my weekends doing. I usually have, you know, Friday off from seeing patients. And so I'll go out and do a nice long hike. I've done South Mountain, P.S. to I mean, superstition. I, I like to go everywhere. So, but you know sooner rather than later, the heat's going to hit us. And then we'll be hibernating for a little while. So
0: (laughs) there's a few of my friends that live in Phoenix and I I generally just like have to hide them for like six months out of the year because they're posting amazing hiking pictures and mountain biking pictures. And it just looks so amazing in the dead of winter. So enjoy it while you can for sure. (laughs) And that's exactly what we
1: do. It's like to to me right now, this is cold. We've had a, a relatively cold winter, colder, colder than usual, Um, But then, you know, I talk to people. I'm from Ohio originally. So I see people from back home and I'm like, yeah, no, we're doing all right. It's not that cold. I'll be okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I see. It it seems to be that pretty much everybody in Phoenix is from Michigan or Ohio or Minnesota. There's a ton of people from that area of the world that ended up migrating somewhere warmer, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. As soon as I saw that there was an naturopathic school out here, I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to Arizona. And my plan was actually to eventually go back to Ohio and practice. And I was like, nope, I'm staying. Yeah.
0: Good call. <laughs> I love it here. Good call. Good for you. Um, you have a really interesting story with the medical world and the medical system that I really want to tell. How, how long have you wanted to do something in the medical world?
1: Oh, my gosh, since I was a kid, ever, ever since I was a young kid, all I ever wanted to be was a doctor. Now, I didn't know what a naturopathic doctor was, and I didn't understand all the different nuances as far as, uh, you know, pharma and all those types of things. Right. Conventional medical system didn't know that. But I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. That was never a question in my mind.
0: Yeah. So what did you learn about the medical system? I mean, I, it seems to me that most people who become doctors of any kind or do anything in the medical world, they get into that field for the best reasons. They really, really, really care. And they really, really want to help people that said, I think a lot of people, like when they get into that world, they have a really tough time because the system is not really set up to help take care of patients. What was your experience with that?
1: Yeah, so a couple of different experiences. So initially, I, I just thought I would be an MD, right? I, that's all I knew. We didn't have, they're still, uh, nature by the doctors are not licensed in Ohio. So they're kind of a rare thing over there versus in Arizona you know, you'll see them on every single block. Right. Um, but when I was younger, I used to suffer from migraines, uh, and they never, ever figured out what caused my migraines. They eventually went away on their own. I don't know what I did. You know, I was in high school. Um, but it was a terrible experience. You know, they put me on blood pressure medications that someone who was an athlete and already had low blood pressure. So I ended up passing out once. Um, you know, had all the had spinal taps done, had MRIs, all these things, and nobody could figure anything out. And not once did anyone ask me what I was eating. (laughs) Not once, which is amazing to me, because knowing what I know now, that would have been one of my first questions is what are you eating? What's your menstrual cycle like, you know, maybe there's a hormone issue, you know, there's tons of other investigations that could have been done. But all it was was basic blood work, imaging, and we can't find anything. So here, here's a drug, right? And that was, Even at that young of an age, I was like, huh, that is not, that's not what I consider medicine, but here I am. I still want to be a doctor because I do want to help people. Uh, and so I continued along and I was in doing my pre-med at Kent State University. And I was in this pre-med club, and they would bring in all these different doctors with different specialties. And we got to ask them questions and they would tell us a little bit about what their day was. And I was disappointed, (laughs) highly disappointed. Because in my mind, I had this vision of what medicine looked like. I was very fortunate, even though I had an MD pediatrician growing up, she was so naturopathic. She just doesn't know it, right? She was, I mean, her physical exams were on point. She asked questions about my social life, asked all these important key questions that doctors don't ask typically. And so that was my experience with medicine initially. So when I'm seeing all these doctors as you know more of an adult at that point, I knew immediately, oh gosh, well, this isn't what I want to do. And now I'm freaked out because this was my whole life, right? And so I got out my laptop, which was probably like five inches thick back in the day. and <laughs> took forever to load up and started doing some research and eventually somehow found naturopathic medicine. And when I started reading through the principles of naturopathic, sorry, naturopathic medicine and how they practice and all the different things that they do. It was like a light bulb went off. I was like, "This, this is what I want to do." Now there's only a handful of schools, right? So I was like, "All right, well, now what do I have to do?" <laughs> and so, and you know, this was probably what junior year in college. And so I had to switch my whole game plan, kind of last minute, you know, from what I thought was going to be going down the traditional medical school path to now I'm going to naturopathic med- medical school. And I don't know. I guess people who go to naturopathic medical school, a lot of people think of us as like, you know, the witch doctors, the black sheep, you know, kind of the outcasts and That was always kind of me growing up. So I was like, cool, I'll be right at home with these folks. This will be great. (laughs) So, yeah, once I found uh, so I found Southwest uh, Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine and now goes by Sonoran University. They just changed their name. Um, But yeah, once I found them, it was not long after that I took a flight out here, checked out the school and and the rest is history. And
0: here I am. (laughs) That's great. So can you explain some of the major differences between naturopathic practice and what would be considered like a more traditional kind of in the medical system realm of, of treating patients?
1: Yeah, there's so many differences, but I would say what it really comes down to is our philosophy and how we approach medicine. We don't look at individuals as body parts. Right. So when you think about when somebody goes to a primary care physician, a typical primary care physician, let's say they've got a headache. Well, now you're going to see a neurologist, right, because they specialize in things that go on in the head. Right. Or they have a gut issue. Well, now you're going to see a gastroenterologist because they specialize in things going on in the gut. The problem is, is that when you specialize in that way, you don't see the whole picture. Right. You don't see or you just forget that everything is interconnected. So I know, yes, even if somebody has a migraine or they have fatigue, well, there's so many different things that we need to consider in that pathway. And you can get very focused on just one piece. So when we look at patients, we look at them as a whole person and the symptoms that they're having are not things that we want to suppress. Those symptoms are their story. Those symptoms are telling us what we need to look for right? So instead of if somebody comes in and they've got diarrhea, I'm not going to give them an anti-diarrheal. I might, I'm not saying I would never do that, right? There's a time and a place for symptom management, but even if I do give them some symptom management, I want to find out why they're having that symptom in the first place. Rather than shutting down the system and uh, symptom and leaving it at that, I want to figure out what the underlying cause is. And that's really the, the bread and butter of naturopathic medicine is finding the root cause, Where is this coming from, right? These symptoms don't just come out of nowhere. You're not just getting old because I get really tired of patients being told that they're just getting old or not. Thank you,
0: thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Super frustrating. Like we can live healthy, long, vital lives and be moving and be relatively pain-free and happy and all of these things. But we treat people as if you know, well, you're just gonna break you know break down over time and it starts at 40. I mean, yes, of course we age and that's a normal process, but we can do that with a lot more grace than what is promoted in the conventional system. So really it comes down to root cause and treating people as individuals, Right, I get asked questions about protocols all the time. What's your protocol for this? What's your protocol? And I'm like, I don't have protocols. There might be similarities among a lot of the things that I do, but I don't have an algorithm like a a conventional doctor does. Right, conventional doctor, you go to them, you have high blood pressure, and they'll say, okay, if your blood pressure is at this level, here's your next steps. Right, you're gonna give them this medication. Recheck them in three months. Medication's not working. Now you're gonna do this. Right, we don't have that. We have general guidelines, but I'm treating the person that's in front of me. I'm not treating their disease right? Treat the person, not the disease and get at the root cause. And I think that's the biggest difference there.
0: Yeah. And I love that you're not ruling anything out. It seems like you are able to use all of the same tools that are available to the standard medical system and use them when appropriate, but you're asking more questions to go a little bit deeper. So you're actually addressing the issue rather than covering it up with, you know, whatever medication or procedure a a normal MD would, would have at their service.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And that's, I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't get. you know, they think, oh, either you're all natural or you're all pharmaceutical. No, there's blending between those. I have tons of thyroid patients who need thyroid medication, right? I'm not going to not give them thyroid medication and say, oh, take this herb instead when it's clear that they need a medication. Or if somebody has high blood pressure, I'm not going to let that high blood pressure run like crazy and then end up, you know, they end up with a stroke. I don't want to do that to anybody. I will get them safe first, get them safe and comfortable. How will we work on what are the underlying issues that brought them there in the first place?
0: Yeah. Okay. So on that note, and on the way that you work with your patients, and especially in the way that the doctor was working with you, you described yeah. as you were growing up, that story you always hear is medical doctors do not have time. They need to see you and have you out the door in five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever the number is, you understand that you need to spend more time with people, which makes a lot of sense. But as far as like practicality, how are you able to do that? When most medical doctors, it's not possible. They can't get paid, whatever, if they're, if they're seeing people for longer than, you know, eight minutes or 10 minutes or however long they have, what's the difference? Insurance. Insurance.
1: I don't have to listen to insurance. So I don't contract with any insurance companies and that's pretty common out here in Arizona. Now, there are naturopathic doctors in other states where contracting with insurance is a lot more common and they have they're always fighting for pay disparity. Always, always, always fighting to get paid. And I knew that I never wanted to. I don't want that fight. I don't want to play by their rules. I don't want them to tell me what to do. I want that conversation to be between me and my patient and what is best for them. So, like, let's say somebody comes in and I really feel that they need an MRI. I rarely run MRIs, but this is just an example that people can relate to. Well, if you are going through insurance, they're going to say, well, no, we need you know, an x-ray first or an ultrasound first, and then you're going to get the MRI, even though the x-ray and the ultrasound is not going to show what you need. So you have people sitting behind desks who aren't trained in medicine whatsoever. They don't know your patient at all. They don't know their history. They don't know what's going on in their lives. They don't know their symptoms and they're making determinations on how they get to have their health delivered to them, their healthcare delivered to them. I don't want to ascribe to that. So by not using insurance, I can spend as much time as I want with my patients because we get to choose that. So it's very empowering for me Cause my, my new patient intakes are an hour, hour and a half. I can't even imagine only spending like even 10 minutes with somebody and then trying to figure out why they're as sick as they are. Like we have a lot of sick people in our world today, right? What is it? only like 12% of people are metabolically healthy. So it's a lot of sick people. And you can't do that in five minutes because most of the reasons that people are sick, right? Come back to chronic disease and what's chronic disease about. It's how they live. Right. What is their stress like? Are they hydrating? Are they moving their bodies? Are they exercising? What are they eating? Right. What's their home life like? And you cannot figure that out in this much time. So that's how I get away with doing what I want to do is by not contracting with insurance. It doesn't mean that we're an out-of-pocket cost, but the way I explain it is yes, you might pay more up front, but over time, for sure, you are going to save a ton of money because you're going to be healthier. And you're not going to have to rely on the medical system to get you well.
0: I love that. I love that. We treat our people the same way. Like, yeah, you might pay for some sessions, but we're going to teach you how to strength train. We're going to teach you how to eat properly. Once you understand those things, you kind of don't really need us anymore unless you enjoy it and you want to keep paying. Like, that's totally fine. We love that. It's good for business, but you shouldn't need it. We should be able to fix you and turn you loose so that you can go out and do this on your own. It's, It's a completely different approach than the way I used to approach it, where basically we would, you know, nutrition coach people based on behavior change. And when people were goofing up their behavior, it would always be their fault. And it was easy to keep somebody on that, you know, that wheel over and over and over again, because you could always find something to blame them for.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I always tell my patients, my goal is to work myself out of a job. Essentially, there's enough sick people that probably won't happen in my lifetime, but I want to get them to a point where they don't need me, or they only come in once a year, get their basic blood work done, you know, for their meds or whatever they need. But even just today, I got a message from a patient say, Hey, just wanted to let you know, I got sick last week, but I did all the things you've taught me how to do and I'm getting better. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. Right. And that's beautiful. I'm like, cool. Like not only does she feel empowered because she knows what she needs to do, but she's getting well doing simple things that she can just grab over the counter. Right. That's, that's
0: beautiful to me. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was just listening to a podcast last week that was talking about health insurance as it relates to even other insurances. And it's like progressive car insurance. Has incentives if you drive better. If you're not hitting your brakes as hard. If you're not speeding all the time, your rates will be better. It's exactly the opposite in the medical world. The insurance system seems like such a scam. And you think about it, like okay, whatever you're paying for your premiums plus whatever your deductible is, you might be out of pocket fifteen thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars, whatever the number is before the insurance pays out a single dollar. It's crazy. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. It, they they want you sick, right? That's the only way they make money is if they have more sick people. The less sick you are, the less reliant you are on needing them. Like I don't have insurance. And a lot of my patients use um, like health collectives or insurance collectives. Um, There's like Liberty Mutual. There's a couple out there. So there's alternative options or some people will just get like the catastrophic and then pay out out of pocket for everything else. And if you're healthy, that's totally a doable thing. If you've got chronic conditions where you need equipment, let's say you know you're a type one diabetic and you need insulin and you need CPAP, and you need some of those things, that those costs can really add up. And I can see where insurance may be beneficial in those situations, but at the end of the day, we still want to get you as healthy as possible. So you need less of those things.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I know that you started your career with a real interest in chronic disease, um, especially things like type two diabetes, but as your career evolved, you kind of became more interested in the thyroid and, and autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's. Can you tell us a little bit about that evolution?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I have family members with type one and type two diabetes and, you know, I saw how they were treated by the conventional medical system. And I thought, this is what I want to do. Like, I need to help these people. And, you know, my very first patient was a type two diabetic and man, he was a tough one. (laughs) He was a tough one. Very difficult um, making changes, but I was also a new doc, right? And I didn't have the same skill set that I have now. So I probably would have been a lot more successful if he came to me at this point. But the interesting thing was, it was just, those weren't the people coming my way. The people that were coming my way were women with adrenal and hormone and thyroid issues. And I thought, well, okay, well, if that's who's coming in my door, because early on, when you're trying to build your practice, you kind of just take whoever walks on the door. There's some people who niche down right away. That was not my pathway. I was like, whoever comes in, we'll figure it out. Fine. And so, you know, end up reviewing a lot of that material, getting very familiar with treating those things. And I myself was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, you know, kind of in this process. And so I had to heal myself. And by healing myself, I learned a lot of skills that I now get to share with my patients. And so that's why I think that's The fun part about doing what I do, because I I do treat Hashimoto's primarily and hypothyroidism, I do other things as well, but I can very much relate with my patients. I'm like, I know what that level of fatigue looks like. I see those dark circles. I see, you know, all the signs and symptoms of everything you're feeling. And I know what it feels like to be in that position. And it sucks. And I love helping them get out of that position as fast as possible. So they can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that they don't have to live this way, that they don't just have to take a pill and say, well, nope, your labs are fine. So there's nothing else we can do for you. Like how defeating is that? So I love being able to empower people because I've been through it and I know what it's like. And I was stuck in that place for a long time of being unwell and it feels so good to be healthy. <laughs> so I love being able to share that with everyone.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. State of the state, where are we currently with some of these things? When I was back at the corporate gym pre pandemic, I was using a metabolic cart to measure people's metabolism. And after using it for over a decade, you, you, you know, it was nice to have the data. It was nice to have the numbers and see exactly where people were, but you didn't, you didn't need the machine anymore to identify the female that's 35 that comes in, that is wearing a jacket in July when it's hundred degrees outside. And you just kind of, you know, pick up on that kind of thing. So where are we today? It just sure seems like these types of issues are as prevalent as they have ever been. Is that the case?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've actually had this conversation with folks. So just taking people's temperature, right? So we take people's temperature when they come in and seeing the decline, right? 98.4 is supposed to be our, our set point, right? And I never see anyone. I rarely see anyone in the 98s. It's always in the 97s. So I started talking with other physicians like, are you guys seeing this too? Like, is this, is this just my population? Because I see a lot of thyroid folks, or what's the deal here? And across the board, right? Across the board, our nation is just metabolically unhealthy. And when you are metabolically unhealthy, that leads to a slew of other things. And then on top of that, right, we're being inundated with all sorts of chemicals and our water and our food and our air. And I think that piece can be defeating for a lot of people because there's not a whole lot you can do about that, right? You can have your filters, you know, your air filters and your water filters and, you know, buy as high quality food as you can, but high quality food can be expensive for a lot of folks. And so I really think that, yes, we are seeing a lot more autoimmune disorders I, and, you know, I'm biased because that's what I do, right, is Hashimoto, So, of course, I'm looking for that, but I'm seeing a lot more of that. Um, and my colleagues would say the same thing. We're seeing a lot more metabolic disease, but that is the state of the world. And that's that's what we're trying to change, but it's not easy. <laughs> we're up against a lot because the narrative is much different. Like the mainstream narrative is much different where it's just take this pill. There's drug commercials for everything and teaching people that, the basics, like really, that's what it comes back to. That's what I always think about is like, it really just comes back to the basics. And what do they even teach cooking in school anymore? Like we had cooking classes, we had sewing classes and we had, you know, phys ed, you know, phys ed and all of these things. And I I feel like a lot of that is missing now and people aren't even getting the basics. And that's where I really think we need to come back to. And that's probably why we're so sick is because we've forgotten a lot of the things that our ancestors knew.
0: Yeah. Um, and I'm super excited to talk to you about all of those things. You wrote about that really well in your book, which I love. Um, but but yeah, can you tell us specifically what is going on with Hashimoto's? This is kind of your okay. baby and where you know the most <laughs> of anybody I can find. Um, can you explain what Hashimoto's actually is?
1: Yeah, so Hashimoto's is just one of many autoimmune disorders. And a lot of people like to describe it as your immune system is attacking your own cells. Which in its most simplest explanation is not necessarily untrue, but really what it is is your body's trying to protect you. So what's happening is there. So let's go back a little bit. There's the three-legged stool of autoimmunity, right? So there's three pieces that are going to bring someone to develop an autoimmune condition. So the first one is a genetic predisposition, meaning somebody in your family has an autoimmune disorder. Nothing you can do about that, right? We can... Uh, you know, effectively change how our genes are expressed in some ways, but that genetic predisposition is still there. The second leg of that is going to be stress. (laughs) And think about like the past three years, like a crazy amount of stress and just in general, right? People are under a lot of stress right now. And then the third piece is gut health, right? Leaky gut. So we have people eating a standard American diet, which is going to cause leaky gut. They're working jobs that they hate and they're working way too much not spending enough time in nature, not taking care of themselves, right? And then that genetic predisposition, those three things are going to lead people to develop autoimmune disorders. So when I think about autoimmunity or when I think about Hashimoto's in particular, I think it's really important to mention that this is an immune system disorder and not a thyroid disorder, right? Because a lot of people think, oh, this is a thyroid disorder. No, this is your immune system responding to your internal and external environment, right? That's what our body does. It's always kind of taking pieces like, okay, Did I get enough sunlight? Did I get enough B vitamins? Did I get enough vitamin D? Like what, you know, and it's always assessing what's going on. And when it feels like there's an imbalance, it's going to do something to correct that, right? And so if you have a genetic predisposition for an autoimmune disorder, that might be how it responds. So in this case, what happens is the immune system is producing antibodies against thyroid cells. So it starts to destroy those thyroid cells. Those thyroid cells have hormone, thyroid hormone in them, T3 and T4, mostly T4, but some T3. And so that that cell gets destroyed. A bunch of thyroid hormone goes into the system. They might feel a little hyperthyroid for a little bit. So they might feel anxious and they might have trouble sleeping. They might might even lose weight, feel sweaty, all of those things. And then the hormones are cleared out. And then they usually will go into more of a hypothyroid state where they feel sluggish and they're having trouble getting out of bed and they're gaining weight and they're puffy and their joints ache and all of those pieces. So when somebody has Hashimoto's, It doesn't just affect what's going on in the thyroid. This is affecting the whole system. And that's why they have systemic symptoms, like literally from head to toe. There can be any number of symptoms that present as Hashimoto's. And so our goal is to, you know, heal the gut so that we don't have any more leaky gut issues going on and use the stress in a positive way. We can't get rid of stress, right? But utilizing that stress to your advantage And teaching people how to do that, that can help get them out of it. And of course, minimizing stress where it doesn't need to be, right? There's going to be some level of that, but you can't get rid of it completely.
0: Yeah. And I was going to ask you on that note, what about the standard advice that people hear when they need to get in shape or they want to lose weight? You need to exercise more, you need to move more and you need to eat less. How does that contribute to this whole mess? Because (laughs) I saw that all the time.
1: All the time, all the time. And still every single, you know, I see every single week somebody has been told that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So there's, a. I, I shouldn't say it never works. Sure. It can work, but is it a long-term solution? Absolutely not. And when you have an autoimmune disorder, what I always tell folks is you have to make your body feel safe. If you are restricting food, right? I get women who are eating like a thousand calories, 12,000, 12, sorry, 1200 calories right? And I'm like, your body is hungry. It doesn't want to do anything because you're not giving it enough fuel to do that. We have to make the body feel safe so that that immune system is like, oh, I'm okay. I'm in a safe environment. I'm well-loved. I'm well taken care of. And starving themselves is not going to do that. And certainly doing a bunch of HIIT exercises, you know, seven days a week, that's not going to help either. And so I get, it's interesting. You get kind of different flavors of patients that come in. And so there's definitely the ones that are under eating you know, exercising way too much. And, you know, the first thing I want to tell them, I'm like, okay, well, we need to back off on your training a little bit. Right. I need you to dial it back. Right. And there's like, look of fear. Cause they think they're going to gain a bunch of weight. Freak out. Right.
0: Freak out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, well, when do I get to exercise again? And I'm like, when your body is healed. Right. And we're going to do it in a way that doesn't put you back in this situation again. And so it's even funnier that, in you know, if somebody has eight minutes with the doctor, you can't explain all that. They don't understand like, oh, I need my body to feel safe. I need to be, you know, put my body in a position where it can heal. They don't understand that. So yes, restricting food and exercising like a mad woman is not going to heal your th- thyroid. If anything, it's going to make it worse.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. I saw it all the time. So how exactly are we identifying Hashimoto's? What metrics are we looking at to diagnose this? And I'm going to go one step further and also ask, what is the prevalence in your opinion? Is this a problem that affects 80% of women? Is it 8% of women? Like in your practice, again, it's kind of biased because it's what you do, but how prevalent do you think this is in the population?
1: So there's about 14 million people with Hashimoto's wow. in the United States and women in particular, are seven times more likely seven, seven to 10, depending on which resource you use seven to 10 times more likely than men to have it. So it's huge. Right. And those are people that have actually been diagnosed. A lot of it goes undiagnosed. very, very common for it to go undiagnosed. And so it's it's good that you brought up the point about, OK, well, how does it actually get diagnosed? So in the conventional system, right, you go see your primary care physician in the conventional system. How are they going to assess for your thyroid? They're going to run a TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. This is not helpful in and of itself. Thyroid stimulating hormone is a hormone produced by the brain, in particular, the pituitary gland. Its job is then to send a signal, right? So it's going to stimulate the thyroid gland to make T4 and T3. So if you only check TSH First of all, you're only checking one part of that pathway. This is a pathway that works on a negative feedback loop. So when your body makes T3 and T4, it tells your brain, I either need more or less of that hormone, right? So you're only checking one part of that. I've seen plenty of people have a normal TSH and have T4 and T3 that are suboptimal or possibly even low. Okay. So that's one piece of it, but that doesn't even tell you if you have Hashimoto's, right? So, okay. They're running a TSH, which doesn't give you much information. And then they're not even checking the antibodies that would tell you if you have Hashimoto's. So there's two main antibodies. There's the TPO antibodies and thyroglobulin antibodies. The majority of people who have Hashimoto's will have one or both of those positive. There is a small subset of folks who will not have positive antibodies, And in those folks, when I'm really suspicious that there is actually a thyroid disorder, I'll run an ultrasound on them, a thyroid ultrasound. And then usually on the ultrasound, I'll see evidence that there is thyroiditis. So when we talk about Hashimoto's, the full name's Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so you can see evidence of that on the ultrasound. So that's how you diagnose it. So that this is why a lot of people go undiagnosed and they go untreated because they're only, basically the doctors are waiting until there's enough cellular destruction by that autoimmune process until they need a medication, they'll literally tell patients, oh yes, you, you know, let's say they did check for Hashimoto's. Yeah, you have Hashimoto's, but we'll just wait until you need thyroid meds. Literally just waiting for disease to get worse makes absolutely no sense to me it's very frustrating. And I imagine for patients, right. Even more frustrating because they're not getting the care that they need as early as they need it. Cause if they were to get it at the time, if they were to get help at the time that they were diagnosed with Hashimoto's, they may never develop hypothyroidism. We could prevent some of that cellular destruction from happening and they may not ever need a medication. Like I'm not on medication. I was for a short period of time, did a lot of healing and I haven't been on thyroid medication for years and years and years. Not everyone can do that, but I was also diagnosed fairly early on.
0: Wow. Yeah, it sounds to me almost exactly like type 2 diabetes, where we're really measuring mm-hmm. the wrong thing. We're looking at blood glucose, which is controlled by rising insulin for years and years and years and years before we ever diagnose type 2 diabetes. The insulin's been going bananas for years, and we could have diagnosed it a lot sooner and helped somebody if we were looking at the right number. Why, why are we not running full panels? Is it like way more expensive? Is it harder to detect? Like why why doesn't the medical system like measure more things? That makes no sense to me.
1: I don't know exactly why, but in my mind, what I always say is because they don't know what to do with it. If somebody's diagnosed with Hashimoto's, what do they do? There's no drug for Hashimoto's. There's a drug for hypothyroidism, which can develop after Hashimoto's, right? Hashimoto's is the number one cause of hypothyroidism in the U.S. So anytime I get a patient who says they have hypothyroidism, but not Hashimoto's, I'm like, okay, you probably have Hashimoto's, let's check for it. But they don't know how to treat Hashimoto's. Hashimoto's is is a lot of lifestyle stuff. It's teaching them to eat the right foods that work with their body, right? Doing elimination diets, right? Doing carnivore, doing, you know, animal-based, whatever, whatever fits for them. It's teaching them how to manage their stress. It's teaching them to meditate, teaching them to, you know, lift weights, whatever it might be. That is not something that they're trained in. They get, I, I just did a post on it the other day, but like the amount of nutrition training they get is pathetic. So they don't know what to do with it. So maybe that's why they don't care to check for it because they literally don't have the treatment for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that from so many people that we're not giving our doctors enough education in nutrition that they could go out and help people. My argument is let's continue not giving them any education because the education they get is probably going to be the wrong stuff anyway. (laughs)
1: exactly exactly like step one foot in a hospital and see what they're serving you know sick really sick patients in a hospital and that tells you everything you need to know about nutrition because they have registered dietitians who are doing those and this is nothing against registered dietitians i have registered dietitians i work with and they're amazing but you have to unlearn the things that you've been taught right they're they're you know giving i've looked at like the diabetic diet at the um hospital and like the carb count is crazy like no nutrient, like the lack of nutrients is, is just astonishing. So, and it's kind of like, you know, we've seen, I've seen MDs do like weekend courses in homeopathy. Well, now they're treating people homeopathically versus, you know, we're getting years of homeopathy training. So I'm kind of in the same, same line as you is like, well, don't teach them. That's not their thing. And that's okay. Right. They do what they do and they do that Okay. <laughs> but let us handle the rest because that's what we're trained in. So not everybody has to be good at everything. Like I'm not going to go do surgery. I'm not good at that. That would be a terrible idea. Let the surgeons do that. That's what they're good at. Let us handle the other pieces because that's one, what we love to do. Right. And two, we're really good at it. So I don't see any point in really training them anyways, maybe give them the basics, but let they should know when to refer out and not look at us as the enemy, but as helpers that can get patients well. And if your goal If you are always focused on getting the patient well, then you always make good decisions. If you're focused on your ego, you're focused on your pocketbook, then you're not going to make good decisions. That's right.
0: That's right. I love that. That's a great point. Today, we just dropped an episode with uh, Dr. Gary Fetke in Tasmania, who is amputating more and more diabetic feet and went to go visit his patients and saw that they were getting three servings of ice cream every single day. It was the hospital guidelines. They came after him. The cereal companies hired people and came after him. He had to fight for six and a half years to not lose his license. And even then, he only won his case because of a technicality in the case. It wasn't anything to do with like the content. He was just telling people, like, whoa, like, we can't be feeding type two diabetics more sugar in the hospital. Like this is, this is poison to these people. This can't be part of the guidelines. They came after him. So it's, it's tough. It's tough out there for for people that are learning this information, even trying to implement it. it. There's some risk there.
1: It is. It's insane. And, and, you know, I work. So a lot of people with Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism have cholesterol issues, right? And so having to teach them that, no, you don't need a statin. No, that's not going to reduce your risk significantly. You know, no, your LDL cholesterol being high is not a big concern for me. Let's look at your triglycerides. Let's look at your triglyceride to HDL ratios. Like let's look at all these other components that we know clinically actually make a difference, but getting people to unlearn that is really difficult. And then the, sometimes people will feel like, you know, their doctors are kind of being pitted against each other, right? Well, I'm saying like, this is wrong. And then the other doctors saying they're wrong. And so I always try to give them as much data as I can. And I also teach them to use their intuition, right? Yes, you know, you can't rely on your intuition necessarily for everything. But I think a lot of people innately know what's right for their body. And so my job is really just to educate them and then let them make decisions about what they want to do. And I tell them all the time, whatever decision you make now, that's not set in stone. If you want to change it later, we'll change it later. But here's the information. You decide how you want to navigate this, and I'll support you in the best way that I can. And I think if we approach it that way, we do a lot further.
0: Amazing. Yeah, I love that. What a great explanation. So before we deep dive into some of the lifestyle features that you talk about, let's talk a little bit about the medications that are available. What do you see? What is helpful? What is not helpful? Um, I, I don't even know what's available.
1: Yeah. So the most common medication that people are familiar with for thyroid disorders is going to be levothyroxine or Synthroid, which is a T4 medication. So remember thyroid gland makes T4 and T3. About 80% of what the thyroid gland makes is T4, but the T3 is actually more active. So we rely on other tissues, mostly the liver, but also nerves and muscle and a couple other places to convert that into the more active T3. Okay. So if you are giving somebody levothyroxine or Synthroid you are assuming that their body can convert that into the more biologically active T3, which oftentimes is not the case. There's a lot of things that hinder that conversion, stress being a big one. Hello, they have Hashimoto's in the first place, three-legged stool of autoimmunity, so they probably have stress and they're probably not converting well. But they won't know that because they're not checking for T3, right? So they just check TSH, maybe T4. They never even look at T3. So Most of the time, conventional patients are going to get just T4, and once their levels are normal, then they're like, well, there's nothing else we can do. You're fine. Here's an antidepressant, right? Um, Obviously, I don't operate that way. Now, some conventional doctors will sometimes add in T3, so T3 medication is Cytomel or leothyronine is the other name for that. Um, So I've seen some doctors do that, but it's pretty rare that you'll see a conventional doctor do that. A lot of times what I'm using is either compounded T4, T3, so from a compounding pharmacy, which gives us full control over the amount of T4 and T3 that we put in there. So we can really individualize it to the person and you can minimize the number of fillers that are in it. So that's something to consider with conventional meds is there could be fillers in that that could be harmful to somebody who has Hashimoto's. So some people do not react well to that. The other group of meds that I like to use are what are called natural desiccated thyroid medications or NDT. There's a couple in this group. Armor thyroid, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, Even though it's natural desiccated, I've seen a lot of people react poorly to armor. I have a couple of folks on it and they do okay, but I'm I'm just generally, it's not going to be my first choice because I've seen so many reactions to it. My first choice is usually going to be NP thyroid. So this has the natural desiccated thyroid, they're extracts, right? From glands. So they come from a natural source. They have T4 and T3 in it, but it's all regulated, right? They check the levels, right? And it has to be within a certain range because they have had recalls, right? Like any other medication, even natural desiccated thyroid can have recalls. But I find that most of my patients are going to do better. On a natural desiccated thyroid because it has that balance of T4 and T3. So the most of them are not converting well into T3. So it gives them that little bit of a boost so that their energy feels better. Right. And we can work on the healing process. So those are the main ones. There are some other ones like tyrosine, um, it's a T4 only medication, but it's a lot cleaner than levothyroxine. So sometimes I'm having to work with people's insurance, even though I don't contract with insurance, certain, you know, med costs can go up when you're paying out of pocket. So sometimes we have to work within that realm, but oftentimes there's a way around it. And so if there's a way around it, I usually find it. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. So from your experience, let's say that I was not willing to address any lifestyle changes. I'm going to live the same life. I'm not going to address my stress. I'm not going to change my nutrition. Let's say I'm on a standard American diet, but I want a pill. What, what percentage, very generally speaking, like, can I, can I still do a little better? Am I going to do a lot better? Or do I really just have to address lifestyle in in any way to, to really move the needle in any like appreciable way?
1: You're only, I mean, a little better. Like some people, like I'll say, let me back up. I will say that when somebody really needs thyroid medication and I give them thyroid medication and it's the right dose for them, you do see the lights turn on. They're like, boom, okay, I'm awake, right? I utilize that, them waking up as my segue into getting them to make their lifestyle changes, right? Well, now you feel better. Now let's make sure we sustain that. Because what I explained to them is okay, you can take the medication, but the medication does not stop the immune system process, right? It does not stop your antibodies from being produced. It does not stop your thyroid cells from being produced. And so, what'll happen over time, you're on medication, medication, but thyroid cells are still being destroyed. Now you got to bump up your meds, right? And then you got to bump it up again, and you got to bump it up again. And I've had people on, I've had some people come in on pretty high doses of thyroid medication where I'm like, you know, we're going to come to a limit here where, you know, I don't know how safe this is or how dangerous this might be for you to be on this much thyroid medication. So yes, thyroid medication can help and it can kind of turn the lights on for some folks, but it's not sustainable in and of itself.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great answer. Let's use that as a segue to get into some of the pillars that you talk about of lifestyle things that you can modify from from what I do and the people I work with, it seems like the biggest lifestyle factor that gets me the most wins for the most people is nutrition, starting with nutrition. We love the carnivore diet around here. I realize that not everybody is ready, willing, and able to do a carnivore diet. I, I really enjoy it, but I'm also willing to say that, no, lots of people can eat lots of different diets and be okay, it depends on the person. What, what are the major things as far as nutrition goes that you try to modify? And let me back up and just ask, do you feel, like the same way that nutrition is like the biggest lever that you could pull out of any lifestyle thing.
1: I do think nutrition is huge. I would say maybe a st- one that might be contending for for you know that number one spot would be their mindset. It, you can be eating maybe some of the right things, but if your mindset is not one where you're going to consistently like, if people are in the mindset that this is a diet right? This is going to end in 30 days or 90 days or whatever it is. And then I'm going to go back to whatever it was I was doing. If they're not in the mindset that no, this is how you're going to start to live for the rest of your life. That can really hinder their progress. Right. And they'll only get short progress. So I say mindset is kind of, you know, right up there with it, but right. nutrition is huge. And it's where I start with a lot of folks. And so what I do with a lot of my people, you know, people are coming in at different, different areas, um, at different levels of experience, and so most of the time I'm starting with an elimination diet and I do use carnivore as my elimination diet. It did not used to be that way. Um, so there was all sorts of elimination diets that we learned in each medical school, most with tons of veggies and salads and all of these things. And, you know, I, myself, when I went on more of an animal based, you know, carnivore style diet, I was blown away by how much better I felt. Like I thought I was feeling pretty good. And when I changed that, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I was like, I don't have gut issues all the time. Like my skin is clearing up. My joints don't hurt like they used to. It was amazing. But like you, I understand that, you know, I have some patients that are like, but I like my, you know, you know, broccoli or my Brussels sprouts or whatever it might be. And I'm like, okay, cool. But like, we're going to start here. Right. And so I, I think of the carnivore, if nothing else, I think of it as a good you know, jumping off point for people, right? Let's do carnivore. Let's get the gut cleaned up. Let's get your body working optimally, get you all these nutrients so that your body can heal. And then once we feel like we're in a good spot, then let's test some foods, right? Have your Brussels sprouts. How do you feel about them now? Right? Do they serve you well? How does your body feel afterwards? Right? Do you have brain fog? Do your joints hurt? How does your gut feel? Right? And then one by one, they can start to assess, Which foods are safe for them and, you know, which foods they need to continue to keep out of the diet. And some people will find that, oh, I can have broccoli twice a week, but if I do it every day, then that's going to be a problem. Right. And I like to give my patients as much freedom as they can have. I do think that ultimately an animal based diet long term is best for most Hashimoto's patients but there's individualization. So if they want to eat a couple of other things and it doesn't make them feel terrible, then go
0: for it. Yeah, no, that's a very reasonable approach. I can't remember who made this post recently. I've stolen it from somebody. I didn't come up with this myself. But like asking the question, like do you actually truly like broccoli or is broccoli the vehicle that is getting you something salt and some cream and some butter or something else your body is really, really craving? I'm guessing that if I steam up a bunch of Brussels sprouts and just serve them to you without any salt or any oil or anything, you might not enjoy them as much as you thought you would
1: yeah that's what i always say about bread i'm like it's not really the bread that i like it's just a great vehicle for butter into my face
0: exactly
1: so. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's totally me so yeah i usually start with the elimination diet and then build from there with because most of the people i work with are women because women are more likely to have hashimoto's one of the things that i really harp on them about is making sure that they're getting enough protein so many of them are under eating their protein so i'll tell them oh you know i want about i want you to start with like 30 grams of meal right and three meals a day and we look at like what they've been eating and we're talking like 10, 12 grams of protein, maybe per meal, sometimes per day. And it's just astonishing. And it's, I love the transformation when they start eating more protein, they're like, I had no idea I could have this much energy and feel this good. And I just, I love it. So protein has going to be a big one um, making sure they're getting enough fats for their, their hormones. That's really huge. And then carbohydrates, right? We just kind of play with those and see what works for them. Yeah, Yeah.
0: That's fantastic. It just always comes back to protein, doesn't it? It's just such a big priority. If you want to feel better, if you want to have good bone density, if you want good muscle mass, like all of these things are going to be working in your favor to increase your metabolic rate. It all comes back to protein. It's so, so, so critical, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And it's so satiating. I always tell them, I'm like, listen, you know, you get that box of Girl Scout cookies. How easy is it to eat a sleeve of that and not even think twice about it? I was like, but you sit down and eat that steak? You're going to reach a point where like, all right, I'm, I'm full and I can't eat any more steak. I was like, that tells you so much about how those things are, how, how your body utilizes those things. So I I teach them too, you know, when you're eating your meal, prioritize your protein first, eat that first, and then you'll know how hungry you really are for the rest of
0: the things, right? Yeah, exactly. So literally, this is exactly the same way that Ted Damon explains this, but literally when you have a plate, eat the food that has the highest protein in it first, and then go to other things, Correct.
1: Yep. Exactly. Exactly. I do it for myself. That's what I try to teach my patients to do. And it's such a good way for them to realize, you know, where their hunger is actually coming from. I'm like, if you're not hungry enough to eat a steak, then you're probably not really that hungry.
0: Good point. Good point. I absolutely (laughs) love that. So we talked about nutrition, another big priority, I would think if nothing else, whatever you do, if you do animal-based, plant-based, whatever, if you are eliminating the processed crap that is in most grocery stores, that alone, it it will, will move you in the right direction. Correct? huge, huge,
1: right? So yeah, I have some people who are like, you know, I'm not, I'm not down to do the carnivore. I can't do that right now for whatever reason. I'm like, cool, then I need you to take out seed oils and I need you to just eat real food, right? Eat stuff that you recognize. There shouldn't be an ingredient list that's a mile long, right? Eat stuff that you actually know what's in it and that in and of itself can... I mean, that can be huge, especially if somebody's coming from a really metabolically unhealthy place or a standard American diet. That's a drastic change just to get all that stuff out of there is
0: huge. Yeah. Amazing. Awesome. Okay. So right on par with nutrition, you mentioned mindset. What are some specific and practical things you work with, with your patients to change their mindset? You already said like reframing, you know, thinking about a diet to thinking about like, no, actually let's make a small change. It's going to be part of your lifestyle moving forward. What other ways do you help people understand how they can change their own mindset to get better results?
1: Yeah, I was saying there's kind of two pieces there. One is teaching them how to get in tune with their body, right? Learning that their body is telling them all the time what it needs. You just have to figure that out, right? So if you're tired, oh, do I need protein, right? Start with the protein, right? Get your energy up. Um, or maybe your joints are achy. Did you eat, you know, maybe you had something you wouldn't normally eat. Maybe you had too much sugar, right? Whatever it is. So I try to teach people to get in tune with their bodies and then navigate their decisions based on that. If you're disconnected from your body, then you're just eating whatever, doing whatever, living however, and not realizing how those things are actually making you feel. So getting in their body is, is a big part of it. I'll teach them how to journal, right? We do like this head to toe thing where they're kind of checking in on all these different areas, right? Write down your symptoms and then we'll see where you're at after you do the elimination diet, right? Do your head to toe then and tell me what, what's left over. And so that can be one way. And the other thing that I, I think about too is teaching them that this is a process, right? It's not like, oh, there's a rainbow and there's a pot of gold at the end and that's, you've reached ultimate health. This is always a constant. I tell them all the time. I'm like, I'm always tweaking things, right? Because what I need now as somebody who, how old am I? I think I'm 38. I think I'm 38, (laughs) something like that. But you know, what I need now as a 38 year old is going to be different from what I need, you know, when I'm 50 and 52. And so I tell them to think of their bodies as an experiment, right? Test things out, what works for you instead of looking at everything as a failure. I think that's where a lot of people get caught up is that they try something, it doesn't work and they're like, it's a failure, I'm never gonna win. Like, I just give up, right? People like to give up when things don't go their way. I tell them, expect to fail, expect to fail, expect to fall off your diet, expect to miss a week of exercise, expect to, you know, whatever it is, right? To not hold that boundary you said you were gonna hold expect to fail and then use that as a lesson. Okay. Well, why did I fail in that instance? Right. What could I have done differently? And then move on from it. So teaching them how to use their failures as lessons so that they don't get caught up in that negative mindset of, oh, here I am again, right. Fell off my diet and I'm just destined to be unhealthy for the rest of my life. That's not helpful. So getting them out of that space really can do wonders for folks.
0: Well, especially when they already feel like failures. Like we said earlier, like telling people to exercise more and eat less calories is going to fail and it's going to make that person feel like a failure. And every time they repeat it, which they think they're doing the best thing for themselves, they're going to think that they are broken. Something is fundamentally wrong with them that's not wrong with whoever model is on Instagram <laughs> and promoting that type of work. And they don't realize that, yes, it is a journey. It is a, 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 it's going to change over time. I love how you talked about that with age. Is there anything else in the mental health space that makes things like Hashimoto's particularly difficult to deal with?
1: Well, a couple of things. Well, if your thyroid is not well controlled, you can have anxiety and depression and all these symptoms as a result of the imbalance in the thyroid. So, you know, what I always tell folks is like, okay, first and foremost, like I got to get your levels optimized. So I know what's coming from where, right? Where is this symptom presenting from? Once I've got your levels optimized, then I know the other areas that I need to tackle. So that is kind of a tricky piece. Um, and where a lot of women run into trouble going to conventional doctor, because again, they'll just get prescribed an antidepressant instead of someone actually doing the work that they need to do. And then, um, yeah, I would say that's, that's, a, that's a big piece. The other one that I see with a lot of Hashimoto's patients that I've talked about, and it might seem a little woo woo to some folks, but you know, when they talk about chakras, right. And you've got the throat chakra, right. And throat chakra, we think about, you know, people being able to speak their voice and speak their truth and, and say what they need to say. I find that a lot of women with Hashimoto's have suppressed their voice, right? Then maybe they're in a relationship where they feel like they can't stand up for themselves or, you know, I see a lot of mamas, right? And so they give themselves freely to everyone, their children, their spouse, their family, right? And they leave themselves last. And so they have this suppression of, you know, just everything that they need to deal with and they don't have an outlet. Right, maybe they've got some girlfriends that they meet up with, but it's not not necessarily the same as actually tackling those issues. And so, teaching women to be empowered to say what they need to say, sometimes that's a matter of getting them in therapy or doing EMDR or NET, whatever it is. Right. So, there might be some tools that they need to get to that spot. But once they learn to like stand on their own two feet, stand tall, stand confident, say what they need to say that can be a total game changer
0: for thyroid health. Yeah. Amazing. And you talk a lot about spirituality and this is very much related to that. And it's so interesting. I have to say, I say this all the time. When I went carnivore, the biggest thing that surprised me was my spirituality increased. I was not expecting it. I felt a great, much greater connection to the world, to the planet, to the things around me. And I don't know, I felt more gratitude. I felt more alive. I felt like my vibration Increased, like there was a a vast difference in the way that I felt, and I don't know how else to explain it. And it just seems like they're all so interconnected and interrelated.
1: I would agree. I saw the same thing. It was, you know, I would have considered myself like, you know, a little bit of dabbling and spirituality, and I was like, okay, I meditated, do my little things, but there was something that when I changed my diet, when I became more animal based, it really. Feel like it just like opened my eyes to a different realm so to speak I mean again might sound a little woo to some folks but I just felt like I saw things in a different way and things seemed easier to tackle and I wasn't so worried about the things that I couldn't change just like well, well there's nothing I can do about it let that go what can I change right what can I do and it was just that in and of itself, just changing the diet could be part of changing someone's mindset too, right? So these all are kind of interconnected.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's just, everything's a little bit more like stoic and even keeled and you deal with stress like so much better. It's really cool that you notice that too. And I hear it from my clients all the time. It's really unexpected, but it seems to be across the board that people feel that way. So yeah, that's amazing. I think you get a win in one of those buckets. You're going to get wins in the other ones. Another thing that you talk about a lot is hydration. So tell us a little bit about the importance of hydration and is drinking water different than drinking other fluids
1: yes 100 so you know back in the day it was like get your eight you know eight glasses of you know water and everyone will be fine we know a lot more now we knew this then but you know it just wasn't necessarily even in each medical school there's a lot of things that i was taught that i had to unlearn right once i actually looked at the research and started working with patients right and you see clinically what works and what doesn't so i tell my patients all the time water doesn't really hydrate you it's what's in it okay so and the other piece is that a lot of people think, so when we talk about electrolytes, everyone thinks you have to buy, you know, I love my LMNT. I love my Redmond's Real Like all this stuff is fun and delicious and you can grab it and go and that's great. But then people sometimes get turned off because that's an extra cost, right? And they always think, well, everything about health is so expensive. And I'm like, dude, put salt in your water, <laughs> put salt and a little bit of lemon juice. i like, you don't, it doesn't need to be fancy, but I'm always talking to my patients about that. And it's really important, especially for Hashimoto's patients, because a lot of them do have stress and that affects the adrenals, right? So I don't know how much on your show you've talked about like adrenal fatigue, adrenal dysfunction, HPA axis dysfunction, it's all kind of the same thing. But the adrenals love salt. But people think that they're not supposed to have salt because it raises your blood pressure, which is not true, right? So I tell them, like, salt your stuff. Like, one, it makes everything taste better. Two, your adrenals love it. It's going to boost your energy and you're just going to feel so much better. So it's really important for my Hashi's patients that they're getting enough salt and minerals in because it's perfect for the thyroid.
0: Yep. I love that. Once a week, I drive by a natural spring. So water is coming through the earth into the spring and the the water taste. It's just, it's so good. It's really rich. You can taste kind of that mineral deposit. And you realize like, that's how we used to get our water it used to have electrolytes in it from traveling through rocks and collecting all of it. And now <laughs> the water we have is just, it's so dead. So adding salt yeah. is a really great strategy. Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Our water is dead and full of f- fluoride and you know, here in the desert, we're really struggling. So <laughs> not awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not awesome. Not awesome at all. You talk a lot about <laughs> exercise as well. And, and I really wanted to hit this. I want this to be the last thing that we Tell us what proper exercise looks like for people who are struggling with Hashimoto's. It's a great
1: question. It depends on where they're at in this process. If somebody comes to me and they're a hot mess, right? They are really struggling. Thyroid's messed up. Adrenals are messed up. Hormones are messed up. I start super gentle with those folks, right? I need you moving your body, but I don't need you stressing it out, right? You can't go from the couch to doing HIIT workouts or CrossFit overnight. I need your body moving, but let's be gentle about it and then build up. But my ultimate goal is to get everyone doing, of course, a little bit of cardio, right? We need a little bit of that, but mostly strength training. I want these women lifting, right? They don't need to be in the gym and doing, you know, deadlifts and squats and all those kinds of things if that's not their jam, but they need to build muscle. However they do that, I don't care, but they have to build muscle. And that's for a lot of different reasons. One, uh, you know, strength training is important for our bone health. So women moving into menopause, their estrogen drops, and they're more prone to having osteopenia and osteoporosis. So we need that impact to build their bones. So that's one piece. Two, muscles is one of the places where we convert T4 into T3. So if you want more active thyroid hormone, you need good muscle mass we also know that muscle helps sensitize us to insulin, right? So it regulates our blood sugar and that's really important for people who have Hashimoto's because they often have blood sugar issues as well. So, I mean, honestly, the, the list of benefits is just endless. I could go on for days and days and days. No, the mental capacity, right? Like it makes you feel so much better. Like if you've had a bad day, going to the gym and throwing some things around, some heavy stuff, like you're going to feel amazing afterwards. It builds your confidence. And I get a lot of the cardio bunnies, right? So the ones that are doing the treadmill and the elliptical and those types of things. And they're frustrated because they don't look as toned as they want to look. Right. And, you know, aesthetics is an important part of strength training, especially for women. And as we get older, we're a little bit more sensitive to those things. And I tell them, if you want to look good, like you have to build muscle and strength training is where it's at. You're not going to get bulky. You're not going to look like the Hulk. Like you're just going to look more toned, and you're going to feel better. So I think that strength training is 100 percent critical for, for managing thyroid. And even if somebody has some mobility issues, right? Injuries, whatever it might be, you can do resistance bands sitting on the couch. Like there's always an alternative. There's always a way to get it done. You don't, there's not just one way. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I love that. And I I do think most women struggle with that. They struggle with the animal protein. They struggle with thinking that if they lift weights, they're going to get bulky. And I love that the first thing you said about strength training wasn't even about muscle. It was about bones. People don't understand Mm -hmm. how important strength training is for your bone health that everybody's struggling with, just like they are with all kinds of thyroid issues and autoimmune conditions.
1: Yep. Yep. And cause everyone always thinks, okay, you exercise to lose weight. And I'm like, I don't exercise to lose weight. I exercise to be strong. Yeah. Right. Or as, uh, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if you know, Dr. Tina, but she always says, don't be zombie bait. Right. So we don't want to be zombie bait. We want to be strong. We want to get away from the zombies. And so in order to do that, you need some muscle on you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love Dr. <laughs> Tina. She's great. Is there anything we missed in this conversation? I feel like we've talked about all kinds of different lifestyle things. I'm sure we could talk for another several hours, but is there anything major that we missed?
1: I don't know that we missed anything, but I would say, you know, just to kind of summarize, you know, if you are somebody who has Hashimoto's and you are struggling, go back to the basics and really, really fine tune those, right? Figure out what foods work for you, get your body moving, do something for stress every day, like go back to the basics and build from there. You can take supplements and you can do cleanses and you can do medications and all of these things. But if that's all you do, All you're doing is filling a bucket with holes in it, right? You got to patch those holes with the foundation. And if you do that, you're going to get a lot further. And remember that it's a journey. You didn't get here overnight and you're not going to heal overnight. Be proud of your body, love on your body,
0: and it will give you good returns. Simple. It's not easy, but it's simple and it's basic. Yeah, no, I love that. What a cool message. What a cool conversation this has been. Tell us where we can go to find you to connect with you and your work.
1: Yeah, I would say the easiest place to find me is going to be on Instagram because all my stuff is on there. So I have tons of free content on Instagram. And then if you go to the link in my bio, you can get on my email list, which is kind of a more generalized email. But I also have a very specific thyroid blog on there. So you can sign up for that. I've got my book on there. I always have different offerings going on, different challenges and things that people can sign up for. So head on over to IG. Um, It's drstoneaz. That's going to be my handle. So jump on there and you can send me a DM. I'm always happy to chat with people.
0: That's awesome. We will link to that in the show notes. Dr. Carolyn Stone, thank you so very much for all the work that you do in such an important field. I think it really... Uh, speaks volumes to you wanting to really, truly help people. You could have made a lot of money being an MD. You could have gone on and done that and worked in the insurance model. And it is a challenge if you want to go outside of that, but you decided to do that because you wanted to help people. I think your information is wonderful. Love your content. Your blog's amazing. All of this has been so much fun. So thank you so very much for being on our show today and taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate you.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you for helping me spread this message because that's my main goal is to reach as many people as possible so that they can be empowered to make good decisions. So thank you for having me. I appreciate you.
0: Absolutely. You should just be a little bit more passionate about it is what I would just kind of suggest. (laughs) (laughs) You're awesome. Uh, You're the best. Thank you again so very much for being on our show today.
1: You bet. Have a good one. (laughs) You too.
0: And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. At the close of one year and the beginning of a new year, I just wanted to make sure to thank you, the listener, for all of your support and for listening to our show. 2022 was an amazing year that saw lots of growth with the podcast, but also came with amazing results with the people that we get to work with in our business, Boundless Body. We began our business during the confusion of the 2020 pandemic and opened up in July of that year. And we've been absolutely amazed with how things have gone. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of building the plane as we were flying it, but it's turned out amazing. We just absolutely love seeing our clients get amazing results. We love seeing all the great feedback and positive reviews that come through on Apple. So if you haven't already, please leave us a review there on Apple as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and impact the lives of people all over the world. We're super excited for 2023. We already have lots of great guests and topics lined up and we have no intention of slowing down our releases anytime soon. Also, feel free to check out our premium content, which we post on Patreon. There you will find our extended and unedited episodes which we post on the day of recording so you actually don't have to wait for the edited version of the podcast to release which can sometimes be several weeks actually and on Patreon you will also find the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast this was my special project this year, I really wanted to combine all of the very best clips about one topic from our show to combine into extended episodes that take a very deep dive into a topic, I've created two separate topics as a masterclass that are three episodes each, one is all about the macronutrients and the second is all about keto and ketogenic diets. That way you can get a fantastic education from some of our amazing guests in a format that can help you zero in on the topic that you are most interested in, something I'm very proud of and believe that we are sharing this content for a very high value. Remember that you can also book a complimentary 30-minute session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com. And thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.